Queer as Folk was out back then. And I remember like watching it with the like Cartoon Network on the last channel button in case I heard my mom come down the stairs and I could be like, I wasn't watching gay people on TV, no. <laughs> First I got your voicemail, then I got you. But we can meet in person or maybe on Zoom. So tell me what your genre, tell me what do you do? I'd like to know the things that specifically make you. Hey, I'm Tim Barnes, and you are the genre. Each week, I ask awesome people about the first genres that inspired them, the first crafts they pursued, and what their relationships are to those crafts now. Comedian, TV writer, and former TV critic Ashley Ray joins me this episode. She hosts the popular TV I Say with Ashley Ray podcast, wrote for the Adult Swim series Alabama Jackson, and was selected as one of HBO Max's queer comics to watch for 2021. I was excited to talk to Ashley because, you know, creation and criticism are marketed as these two opposing cosmic forces of the entertainment industry. Is it possible to do both of those things successfully? And if so, do you become some sort of all-powerful avatar foretold by Hollywood prophecy? Ashley and I spoke in December of 2023, and in discussing the modern world of criticism, wound up anchoring our conversation around a controversial film review in Vulture, titled The Silence is the Loudest Part of Renaissance, a film. Remember that? Things got kind of crazy for that critic. Unjustifiably so. But Ashley, who has a debut stand-up album titled Ice Cream Money, set to release March 1st, isn't a stranger to controversy herself. And I wanted to know if there's a reason that she often finds herself at the center of an internet storm. Well, I am excited to talk to you because... When I think of Ashley Ray, I think of a lot of different, <laughs> a lot of different wow. things. What do and you think? Just, I'm curious. <laughs> no, no, it's just because your social media presence is so, so you. First of all, so you're the perfect person <laughs> to talk about how someone becomes the own genre through the multitude of things that they do. But sometimes I wonder, like, it's like every month there's some sort of controversy about a, a tweet or something that Ashley Ray has done, and I always imagine you just like smoking uh, a joint and just blowing some smoke out. You know, I'm going to start some <laughs> right now. I feel like you know when you tweet <laughs> no, something. You, you never know when it's going to start. I literally some sort- never know. It is that I'm smoking pot <laughs> and then I go, man, you know what? Uh, God, I'm trying to think of like uh, the last time someone got mad. It was uh, probably something so stupid. Um, oh, I think the last one was like uh, when that little Tay girl faked like her family faked her death or something. I had no idea who she was and saw like, oh, she had died. I, I don't even Googling. know what you're talking about. She used to be a famous YouTuber and she like wasn't as famous and her parents like faked her death to get her back in the newspaper. But every, as soon as it came out, like on the Instagram that she was dead, people immediately were like, this is a hoax. Her parents have tried this before. Like, I doubt she's really dead. Like, here's how awful her her parents are. They like used to make her say slurs. Uh, And I was just like, dang, this is a wild story. I went from not knowing who this girl is to being (laughs) concerned to going back to just simply not caring. And I tweeted basically that just like, I didn't know who she was. I cared and then I didn't. And that was such a fast roller coaster of emotions. And people lost their. <laughs> they were like, How dare you not care about this dead girl? I'm like, She's not dead, though. That's the whole point is that she isn't. <laughs> and then they're like, Well, how dare you not care about a hoax? And I was like, Why? I don't know who she is. Why? 
and all these people were just like, I can't believe you're celebrating the death of a child. And it's like, what, do you, what? So I, I honestly never know it's going to start. Uh, oh, I guess this week people have been mad at me because I talked about polyamory, like, which to me yeah. is so boring to talk about. And I just, there was people who were making fun of this like pregnant poly woman who was crying over her partner dating other people. And I was like, well, hey, you know, some poly pregnant women are chill with it. Some aren't. I've dated some of them. I know. And people lost their um, and said that I was trying to destroy the fabric of America. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think people think it's more calculated than it is uh, because they don't realize I don't care enough about Twitter to be calculated about anything on there. <laughs> yeah. And that I makes can't you wonder. I can't even organize my TV reviews on Twitter. Like, what? <laughs> like, there are people get, get mad at me all the time because they're like, I wish you would just use a hashtag like Ashley Ray mm. Rebecca Men's so I could easily find it or just do and I'm like yeah I don't care enough I <laughs> you're gonna or they're like could you live tweet a show when it's happening and I'm like no I'm gonna live tweet it at 2 a.m. when I'm watching it stone like sorry that's I wish it yeah, I wish it a, was I got a, a life to live machine <laughs> yeah well it, uh, this is an interesting point to talk about criticism as well because there's an article i think it's on vulture um about the new beyonce yes. film that is causing a big stir big big um, stir they're sending death threats to to the author and uh twitter seems to have blown up about it uh you know i think the review there were parts i disagreed with parts that i liked uh, it was a fair, you know, fair criticism. It was one of those things I read that made me excited to talk about it with other people, which I think is what criticisms should try to achieve is that you want to have get the people talking. And I read it. And I was like, yeah, I agree with this part. I disagree with this. I'm like in my group chats, I like, can't believe this. Da, da, da. But on Twitter, it just blew up where people were accusing the author of hating all black art because she had, you know, come against this one piece and a few others, but that's not even, she's like also been such a champion for other black projects. Uh, they said that she has a personal vendetta against Beyonce. Uh, they like start sending death threats. They've been trying to get the article taken down, which is like not My how goodness. any of that works. Yeah. Um, and to just see even like stands, I expect that from when it's, you know, I've, I've said some, I've made some jokes about Nicki Minaj. I've seen the backlash. Mm. I've lived it. So I know you know, she probably knew, yeah, the beehive is going to come for me for putting this out. I don't think anyone thought like other journalists and writers and people would like level accusations of, you know, you hate all black artists and stuff like that. And I think that's a unfair thing that I've run into as a critic, because when you're a black critic, there's this expectation that you'll uplift and support all black art. And if you don't, uh, you hate it and you're, you know, disparaging the people and crit criticism between black people should happen behind closed doors, not in front of everyone. So if you're a critic writing a black critic writing about black stuff, there's this feeling towards you of, oh, see, you just want to like air our dirty laundry. And obviously, I don't think that's any of our intent. <laughs> <laughs> well, what stands out to me is that the person who wrote that article I remember seeing her like uh, at comedy shows and stuff in Chicago. And I don't think we really interacted so much when I was in Chicago. Yeah, but I feel like Chicago, we met one or t once or twice. Yeah, yeah, once or twice. Yeah, but Chicago is this hub of thought in a way. There's there's like all kind of like so many critics there. There's so many um, famous yeah. interviewers there. So many comedians. Comedians. It is just like, yeah. 
and writers. And I feel like also in Chicago, it is very common for people to do everything or to do a lot of things. I would have friends who are like, yeah, I'm in a band and I freelance write for this place and I do this and or and I do comedy. And I was very used to that. I was like, yeah, I'm a critic and I write TV and I do comedy <laughs> and, you know, I yeah, I, I do all yeah. these things. I enjoy it. I freelance and, you know, also do profiles. And when I came to L.A., that's when it was like you have to choose a lane. Like you can't do all the things you can't be a critic and a creative. You can't be a comic and also criticize other comics. Uh, Even though to me, it was like, what are you talking about? Like I do open mics and I'm writing about like Tiffany Haddish. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't think we can say that I'm criticizing my peers. Uh, But then, um, gosh, how could I forget his name? Um, Was it the Gerard Carmichael? Yes. Uh, Uh, But then Gerard Carmichael went on to The Breakfast Club and said I was his (laughs) peer. He called me the Nicki Minaj of comedy to his Cardi B. Uh, Uh. And that's when I realized, oh, I guess I'm in a a higher level than I had seen myself in. Yeah, and this is something I, I think I'd love to explore later because this is this is the stuff that I struggle with as well. But to figure out how Ashley Ray created the empire of Ashley, what was the first genre that drew you in? Yeah, I. This is an interesting question because when I tried to really think about it, all I could think about was gay. <laughs> like my first thought was just gay. Like the first sort of overall thing that I could pinpoint, like there's a similarity between all these things that I like and what it is, is gay. Uh, I was, I'd say I was like 10, 11 years old and I was just so interested in anything that seemed queer or like it was, you know, behind closed doors or secretive. I think what it was is, you know, we had cable in my house, so I would stay up like really late and watch stuff I wasn't supposed to be watching. Um, Queer as Folk was out back then. And I remember like watching it with the like Cartoon Network on the last channel button in case I heard my mom come down the stairs and I could be like, I wasn't watching gay people on TV, no. (laughs) And then like in sixth grade, uh, I got a laptop because I went to a school where all kids got a laptop in sixth grade, which was is a bad idea, um, really bad idea. Whoever came up with that to give a bunch of sixth grade kids laptops and internet access uh, with really, this was like before people even knew how to put up like firewalls and blockers. Like I remember that wasn't a thing at my school until high school. And we were all just like, thanks for the f- like five years of, just uninhibited internet access. Yeah, yeah. There used to be like computer class. I feel like that's not a thing anymore. People just know how to use computers. Yeah. We all got laptops. We had a computer class where we would like sit and he'd teach us how to like make PowerPoints and use Excel yeah, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And it was like, cool, like, great. Yeah. I'm literally just on MySpace, like reformatting my por- my profile, but cool. <laughs> well, I remember um, speaking of queer, potentially, uh, I, you know, loved movies, loved uh, science fiction, loved uh, the X-Men movies. So I typed in X-Men.com. I don't know if I did it with a dash or without a dash, but it did not take me to an uh, comic book website. It it took me to a totally different meaning of X-Men and I had to quickly shut it off. So that's that's the Internet that we were were talking about of our youth. Yeah. And I had a live journal where I was part of like this live journal indie movie community uh, where people would like upload illegal versions of movies. And I would 
really just like look at the cover of things and go, does this look interesting? Do I want to download it? And every time I would do that, I would always just end up downloading like these, the gayest movies. I did like Welcome to the Dollhouse, Swimming Pool, like Water for Chocolate, just like all of these like lesbian movies, Debs, but I'm a cheerleader (laughs) where I would just be like, something about this cover pulls me in. Huh. (laughs) And you know, there's so the, all of those movies, cover different things uh yeah they talk about like coming out and being gay but in very very different ways uh but that was sort of sort of just like the overarching thing that would pull me into something like i knew i was gonna watch the l word because i was like it's gay (laughs) (laughs) well what is the def or how do you define queer and it's one of those words where i don't really know exactly what it means i guess for me uh, i use queer and gay a bit interchangeably, uh, which I know some in the community do not. Uh, But uh, for me, queer, I guess, is a bit broader in that it's a bit like that Supreme Court quote where it's like, uh, I don't always know it when I I, like, I don't always know it when I know it. (laughs) I would love a a Supreme Court quote like that. It's like, I don't always know like what's gay, but I know it when I see it, it's yeah. It's just like, I knew it when I saw it. Like when something was gay, it's queer. It's like, I would know it. I can feel it. Even if it's like a John Waters film that has a, a straight couple, it feels queer to me. And there was a like a, a community and campiness and language and genre that I saw all speaking to each other across these films that like pulled me in. Um, and I think for me, queer can define that. It can defeat, define like the queer language and artistry that we as like a community use. It's like a shorthand, uh, whereas gay, I think for some people, and for me, it's, they're interchangeable, but I think for some people, gay is very much just, just means like a gay homosexual man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and if you're a girl, you say lesbian. And if you, you know, and yeah, so... Yeah. I think that is kind of how people are used to those terms, but they've like evolved to where, you know, women call themselves gay and it, it, it's like understood that that can mean lesbian too, that there isn't this like hard line. But I think queer encompasses all of that. I think queer says, you know, this can be of the trans part of the community, the L, the lesbian part, the gay male part, all of it to me falls under the umbrella of like queer art. Yeah, it's it's when I just think about the word itself, it feels like in a way it could just mean anything that's slightly askew from from a norm. Like, and then yeah. I was like, oh wait, is is Doctor Who queer? <laughs> is the Alien franchise? queer? I mean, there uh, was there were a lot of people talking about Doctor Who being queer on on Twitter, so they were I like, know. he's definitely <laughs> queer because he can, I guess, be like re- he can come back. It's it's like any form. So yeah, so yeah, <laughs> it's kind of, that's a little queer. And I think there is like a queer way of creating art and viewing the world. Um, There is a a line in Renaissance, the the album and the movie (laughs) where, (laughs) you know, someone is like, it's the way that we talk, the way that we walk, it's the way we make love. It's, it's just everything. And I think you sense it in other people and other things. And that was the genre that I just was most drawn to. Like, you know, if, in, even in like my real life neighborhoods and home, like if I would, I get a sense, like in a part of a community, you'll feel the queerness and you're like, something's drawing me It's like here. the force. Yeah. yeah. 
And then you're like, oh, it's a gay bar with drag. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it, it feels like queer, like you recognize it and you're watching specifically queer shows secretly, but um, it still seems like it was a bit amorphous for you. Like, how are you starting to incorporate that into your life? Yeah, I guess, you know, from uh, pretty much around that time uh, at a young age, I knew that I was uh that I knew that I was gay. Um, when I was 12, my mom like tried to send me to conversion therapy at our church. Uh, it was not like the incredibly serious kind. We were poor. It was just like, I would meet with my pastor's wife for like an hour before everyone else. (laughs) And she would just kind of be like, so, you know, it's cool. Uh, husbands. Oh my goodness. You into that? Oh my. And I would be like, you know, that makes me think of like, uh, you know, church gossip too. It's like, you're hanging out with the preacher's wife. The preacher's wife. Yeah. Like, what is she going to say? Like, what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and she would just kind of like listen to me and I would talk about my week. It actually, she was just like super nice. And, you know, it wasn't like you have to change. Da, da, da. It was just kind of like, mm. okay, are you sure about this? Um, so that I think aided in my feeling of I'm, a, I, I'm interested in this genre because I think I am a part of this community. And it took me a while, you know, like in sixth grade, I started a gay straight alliance at my school and was adamant that I was the the straight ally part. I was like, <laughs> I'm just an ally, but I'm starting this club just in case any gay people, if there's any of you, if, if anyone needs it, if anyone, if anyone. Um, but I'm totally, 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 totally straight ally. But if anybody needs it. Um, but like, I remember I put up posters for the Gay Straight Alliance and my school wouldn't let me put them up on the first floor. Uh, because hmm. our school was sixth or kindergarten through 12th grade and kindergartens like K through fifth grade students use the first floor. And they were like, we don't want them to see a poster that says gay. And it was like 2002. And it's like, they can't even see the word gay. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, Oh, okay. This is like, why am I being <laughs> oppressed? Yeah. That's how my yeah. like seventh, sixth grade mind saw. I was like, why I, I'm being a, like, people can't even see this word. That's how much power it has. And that's when I just really started to be like, this is something I don't like there's power in this and being this thing that I am. Um, and I became, I, I, or I started to more openly in life be like, yeah, I'm gay. I'm bisexual. I'm queer. What was the first like official craft that you pursued? Ooh, you know, I guess uh, in high school, I always wanted to be a journalist. That was, I always wanted to be like a an international reporter and report on important news. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I, that sounds like a great intro for a reporter before they ask a question. Hi, I'm an international reporter who reports on important news. Who reports on uh, important news? Uh, thank you. Um, <laughs> and let's, let's see how I always saw myself. And I, I got like internships at my local papers, the Rockford Register Star, um, the Rock River Times, and I would mostly write about like like gay people. I would write about um, there was like a local gay bar in our community that was like facing a lot of uh, harassment. I would write about stuff like that. I would also cover a lot of just cultural things and concerts. Uh, so I would write about bands, like local bands or bands like Warp Tour. And I would always just write about like the gay bands <laughs> or the ones that like always were like, like had queer messaging. You know, I'd be like, hey, guys, I'm, can I do a deep dive review of the new Tegan and Sarah album? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, so I, I think even then, like my my 
sort of eye for what was important in news and what I wanted to tell people about was always kind of queer focused. I remember my probably would have been my freshman or sophomore year in high school. There was a kid in my class uh, who got in trouble because he was giving another boy a in our kiln room. Mm. And, uh, you know, obviously both students should get in trouble for doing something they shouldn't do in a kiln room. But instead, my school only really punished the guy who was giving the and the other guy (laughs) just got like a few days suspension. The other guy got like two weeks and da, da, da. and I was just like, this isn't fair. This is homophobic. Like, because, you know, that the guy who did it is, you know, known as gay and openly gay. He's being punished more uh, and mm. writing about it and just being really upset. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and my school just being like, shut up. Like, no one cares. Wow. So you were. Yeah. Was there anything was like that directly influenced your interest in journalism and that type of thing? Was there like any like characters on television? Yeah, I don't know. It's really weird because I I think that was just what I saw as respectable because honestly, I'd always loved comedy. Like I knew I loved comedy and television and I just kind of always was like, that isn't serious. You can't actually do that as a black girl and like, have a career and make money because I really didn't see any until I like made like Maya Rudolph. <laughs> like mm. that was the first, and I guess kind of Deborah Wilson on mad TV, but it seemed like, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this and have a career like a Mitch Hedberg or something. Um, but in middle school, like at our talent shows, I would just like recreate stand up bits um, I would dress up as like Mitch Hedberg and just do Mitch Hedberg set like perfect like, oh, wow. imitation. I would yeah. play like Flight of the Concord songs. Um, I used to like print out scripts of um, Weekend Update and make my friends like perform it with me. Um, <laughs> so I always well, knew that I loved comedy and writing and, you know, writing creatively but I think by the time I got to high school, I was kind of like, oh, you can't do that. Like, that's not a serious thing to do to make money. And, you know, you're my, my mom wanted me to go to law school. And I was mm. like, I have to if I'm going to write, it has to be serious news. I I feel like I end up talking to a lot of comedians who had a some sort of interest in law or some pressure to law before they started doing comedy. Yeah, it feels so I think connected it's now. our parents saying we're annoying or something. Yeah. <laughs> So go be no- annoying for a greater good. For a greater good. Yeah. Cause like when I went to college, I, uh, first semester, like had originally signed up for pre-law as my, my major. And then I very quickly was like, no, no, thank you. Please. I'm going to do English. <laughs> and it wasn't until really my junior year of college that I started to go like, I don't think I want to do this. I wait, I want to write, but not in a serious way. <laughs> Um, I want to write about I want to just like make queer art I want to like create things and talk about things that are gay and talk about art and get people to talk about it Um, and that's really where I found criticism and and just you know started to develop my focus on pop culture and really I guess at that point I had started to really narrow in on like black television and the golden age of black tv uh, and then I really started to just kind of personally study and write about um, the successes and failures of gay representation um, on on in black TV shows. Well, it feels like an interesting through line from that 
genre and your uh, career path is that when you first started talking about queer, you were saying that you loved you love secrets. You love things that that seemed like you shouldn't be looking at. And it feels like perhaps that was your beginning of starting to categorize things. Perhaps you you felt the injustice of the fact that you had to hide the fact that you were watching the L word from your mom. Uh, <laughs> does that does that ring true to you? Like uh, yeah. this sort of like, did you have this impulse that from a young age? Yeah, I think from a young age, I had this impulse of like I can't I, this isn't what i'm supposed to be doing this is stuff i have to hide like you know this isn't appropriate it's not responsible it's not respectable and for, uh talking about comedy um and the mitch hedberg of it all um we're two you know monotone black people <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i will yes um and i think i i also didn't really um okay i didn't see a path for myself after two things the first black president has a pretty monotone voice that was a okay the world is ready for, for black for a black guy. people, for they're black, ready for, for us. <laughs> After all the damage Steve Urkel did, <laughs> finally. And then, um, honestly, like uh, seeing comedians like uh, like Ron Funches when he first appeared on Conan, seeing like this 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 new uh, space for weirder black comedians, which in a way you could is a you could connect that to queerness in some way maybe but but uh, a type of black comedian who doesn't fit the mold of a steve harvey or uh chris rock you know people more like eric andre and that type of comedian were there similar things like that for you like uh it, i imagine it wasn't normal to see a, a young uh, black woman um you yeah. know pretending to be mitch Hedberg when you were doing that <laughs> yeah i mean i never even really thought about it because to me it was just like i love this i love comedy i love this and you know, I know no one ever was was ever like it's weird. This black girl's like playing Fly the Concord songs and super into this weird comedy <laughs> and like obsessed with Maria Bamford. And, you know, it wasn't until. I'm really trying to think like I, it wasn't until like sh- definitely after I graduated college, really, maybe that I started to really see black female comics uplifted and especially like queer, like or not queer, but like just alt comedy mm. people in that like black women in that space like Janelle James and but even all of those people feel like you know so contemporary that like I feel like I saw them coming up like you know within my adulthood and my childhood it was just very like yeah oh if you're a black woman who does comedy like you do sketch or you know you are mm. doing improv it it wasn't like a stand-up writer thing although that's interesting because I was really into the king and queens of comedy so, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I, I actually don't know if I've ever watched the Queens of Comedy in full, but the Kings of Comedy is a very uh, interesting cultural artifact, yeah. <laughs> especially uh, especially the Bernie. OK, the Bernie Mac set where he rides oh. this line of kind of being homophobic, of, of being yeah. homophobic about. Yeah. And there's and it, <laughs> a lot of homophobic jokes in the Queens of Comedy. Uh, even Mo- I think Monique has one. And then. In her last special, she came out as bisexual. So I think that's so interesting. And I've actually been meaning to like revisit a lot of that era of comedy to really understand like, yeah, like what, why? <laughs> like, yeah. what, I mean, and obviously it's, it's, you want to hide that you want to, you know, if you attack it, no one is going to accuse you of it. But I feel like mm-hmm. if I went back and watched a lot of those like comic view sets and stuff, you'd be like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah that person's gay now. <laughs> 
especially yeah. from like black female comics because i think you know like Whoopi came out as bisexual in the 90s i think but really it's always like speculation it's always like hmm. maybe that black no but we don't we don't talk about it <laughs> like we didn't talk <laughs> well, about way. how raven simone is gay even though people kind of uh, knew until she got like married. queen latifah too yeah queen latifah recently, yeah um niecy nash it's always just kind of hmm. like a and then they get married when they're older and you're like, okay. Yeah. There is something um, about the outspoken unspokens when it comes to queerness and gayness and thinking about like that Bernie Mac set from the Kings of Comedy. I guess what's interesting is that he is commenting on this uh, gay nephew of his but within that, it seems like Bernie Mac is saying like, yes, like this nephew just is gay. He's not saying, uh, you know, a culture is like tricking, <laughs> is tricking him in, into being gay or anything like that. So even in how um, homophobic his set is, at least it feels like a sort of progress in that he's just like, yeah, th- this is my gay nephew wants his milk and cookies, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Don't scroll away. You Are the Genre will be right back after the break. As of the release of this episode, which is independently produced, there are no real ads for me to read. So I'm just going to tell you about a few things that I've been enjoying. One is a little keyboard for your tablet. I recently got a little keyboard for my tablet, and it's a real game changer. I'm not sure why, but the words seem to flow better than they do on my laptop's keyboard. Perhaps it just feels like the closest modern equivalent to a typewriter. This flimsy little attachment allows me to transform my tablet into something greater. It feels like magic. Oh, and in addition to this podcast, I co-host another one called Yubnub. It's a Star Wars-focused podcast where me, Jim Fagan, and Greg Iwenski have conversations that in the olden times would only take place in a comic book store. We just started recording and releasing episodes again, so give that a listen. Lastly, I finally got around to watching the 1990 film to sleep with anger. It filled me with nostalgia for an era of Los Angeles that's pretty much gone, I think. But more than that, it's a top-notch psychological thriller mixed with a family drama. I highly recommend watching it. And if you do, let me know what you think. Now, back to the episode. Where were we? In Chicago, you were being a critic and also doing comedy. What were the levels of that friction for you? Like you, you mentioned earlier this point in which you're like, okay, I've kind of tipped over the line. Where, where, where I guess, my, I, I guess yeah. I did. I if if that is what Gerard Carmichael says, um, <laughs> <laughs> I still feel like I I you know I send booking emails so I can do shows in backyards. So it's it's still hard for me to believe. Um, I'm I it, I'm not allowed to like review like to write a criticism about someone like Monique (laughs) when it's like Uh. we're not like okay but um I don't I guess I I found that balance in Chicago because people didn't really care um I think because it's a scene where there aren't people aren't paying a lot of attention to you you can like do weird things you can write things you can be honest about your opinions and people aren't like hey you know, an agent at UTA saw this. Nobody cares mm. at Chicago. <laughs> so I think that gave me a lot of freedom. Uh, but it also made me get used to things in a way that they don't work in the co- on the coast. That's not how it works mm. in LA and New York. Uh, so I came to LA with like um, a lot of <laughs> courage and just 
uh, there was no filter. I didn't think I needed it. I was like, why? That's not how art gets made. That's not how we do things in Chicago. We, <laughs> we just, we say, it. We, you know, we're like, I disagree with this art. I don't like this play. We just write it. We just do it. And in LA, it's like, oh no, you, I mean, I, like I said, I didn't like slave play and it literally turned mm-hmm. into one of the biggest like things that like happened with slave play discourse. And I still, to this day, <laughs> do not know why, but it's just, it was really different. And that's when, you know, people who I respect in the industry were like, you do have to choose a lane. This is a place where you're branding yourself and you can't be a creative and someone who creatives are afraid is going to, you know, publish a a criticism Mm -hmm. about you. And again, I would say, I don't feel that Jeremy O'Harris and I were peers. (laughs) Like, again, that's a situation where I'm like, you know, I'm like, I review TV and like reality shows. Why do you care about my take on your play? Like if the Tony Awards like it, that should probably make you happy. Um, Yeah. You know, so again, I don't see it as me like taking shots at peers. But I think since everyone thinks everyone in Hollywood has the ambition to reach those levels, like everyone wants to be at that level of... Mm -hmm. I'm a peer with Issa Rae. They they see it as, well, you're gunning for my job, I think, or you're gunning for my position versus, oh, this is just someone who has an appreciation for these genres and wants to write about it and talk about it. So I stopped doing TV criticism like in 2020. Um, that's when I like officially like stopped reviewing comedy, uh, stand-up comedy, TV shows, dramas, comedies. I just focused on writing about like reality TV. Um, that was kind of my compromise because <laughs> I didn't want to <laughs> give it up. So I just would, I got really into writing about 90 day fiance in a super in-depth way. <laughs> um, I was doing weekly reviews for like vulture. Uh, I did a, I went to a documentary festival where they made 90 day fiance, like a centerpiece of it and like hosted an episode and wrote a whole thing. Um, that went into what 90 Day Fiance means for the landscape of like reality TV. And then it just, even with that though, like even just switching completely to reality, just doing like occasional profiles, it still was like, well, no, you're still a journalist, not fully just a comedian. Um, You feel like that's a label that people were putting on you. Yeah. And it was, to me, it was like, I don't really think you can call me a critic because I watch 90 day fiance and make jokes about it but yeah okay but then it's i still was like doing you know profiles of like michaela cole and all these people so you know i Mm. get and doing like cover stories of blind spotting and so i get how it was a little like well how can you say you're just a creative when (laughs) you could turn around and ask for an interview um (laughs) so that was also a part of why i started my podcast uh tv i say because Uh. I wanted a place where I could talk about TV and talk about shows in a way that wasn't critical in a way where it was just like, Hey, the, this is me and Seth Rogen talking about 90 day fiance. And it's not a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> like It's yeah. okay to just have opinions and talk about shows you love. And it's not going to tear this industry apart. Um, it can come mm. from a really just like loving and appreciative place. Um, it feels like a, um, tough thing too um especially because everything is changing so quickly and this divide it feels like it's a dividing line of of the camera honestly like even when i think about points in my life like i remember i was doing i was a digital writer at comedy central the brand (laughs) comedy central and i'm still like going to open mics and stuff and i want to be you know a comedian in front of the camera 
Meanwhile, I'm in meetings where I see my peers on a on a PowerPoint presentation on the screen, <laughs> and, and I'm and I'm literally witnessing the other side of it, where people are like talking about should we cast this person or whatever that kind of thing, and the the weird duality of that. And for criticism, especially like comedy criticism, and being someone like I know you have a new stand up album coming out. These are are two beasts that. Uh, that feed each other. Yeah. But uh, there's a level of uncertainty on both sides, like everything on the technical side of writing criticism and, and being a journalist is so uncertain. Everything on the other end of being a comedian is so uncertain. It's not like you're guaranteed stability on either side. And so that I feel like yeah. that's so it's like there's no stability. So it's smart to be able to do all the things because that's how you actually can feed yourself and make money. And that's how I have <laughs> this yeah. whole time. Like if I had just tried to do stand up, I'm sorry, like I wouldn't make enough money. Um, I, it's not like I'm a touring comic. I don't hit clubs regularly. Like I'm not at that level. So to me, it was like, if I can make, if I can support myself, like doing, appreciating all the things I do and doing all this, why can't I? Um, but even in preparation for like my album coming out, I was like, yeah, you know, I, talked to my team and was like you're right i can't keep being seen as someone who writes about culture and art when i'm creating culture and art so i cut back on 90 day fiance which i had kind of gotten so tired of writing about. <laughs> i was just like I, how many times can i say i don't think she really loves him um so that was really a blessing because it also it's it is still energy and a drain to kind of write it you like have to put that mental like work into it uh, I really decided to just focus on the podcast as a way to talk to people in the industry about the shows we love, which got a little difficult during a strike because uh, we <laughs> couldn't talk about the things we loved. So we really yeah. had to find other like avenues of talking about like the history of TV and different genres. But I really just like put a lot of that stuff aside and have just focused on comedy and just doing the shows and performing and just doing that part of it. Like I, you know, had um, two monthly shows that I was doing this year and just, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like part of it makes me sad that when you get to that kind of next level of LA or New York, you have to narrow things down. I miss a lot of the freedom and openness of Chicago, but I also guess that just comes with, you know, these being higher stakes. So it feels like you're severing ties in a way, from criticism. I've even noticed in the intros to TV, I say that you say former TV critic. Yeah. Comedian, writer, former former, former TV, TV critic. Former TV critic. I, I, um, a phrase my manager really wanted me to put in there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and again, that also is, yeah, it, it's to let people know, like, if I'm talking about your show, it's not because I'm tearing it apart or telling people not to watch it or I'm breaking some rule of not uplifting black creatives. It really is like we're talking about it because it's a thing to talk about in the culture because I want people to talk about it and watch it and engage with it. And you can't ensure that like 100% of people are going to like what you do. But I've always thought, you know, it's just a blessing for a lot of people to find the things you do, like, <laughs> which is another I, I yeah. think another reason why I can't really understand twitter anger criticism because i'm just like ah, hey whatever guys you're like twenty thousand people who wanted to like a dumb tweet what do i care <laughs> like, <laughs> you're just a bunch of people who feel a way about a thing you read like i i just put yeah. it there okay but i think it's interesting that you have like a a, a solid fan base from the criticism arm yeah. of things that you do as well yeah a lot that, of that feels pretty yeah. rare 
Yeah, a lot yeah. of people are I've like will come to my shows and be like, I miss your criticism. Like, when do you think you'll do that again? <laughs> or like, I would love to see your take on this. Do you think you'd ever write about it? And I don't know. I don't like I I miss it in some parts. I miss real just like investigative deep dives into work and just how things are made and the like when something comes together. But I mean, also seeing like what that that the girl who wrote that Renaissance Vulture piece is going through. I'm like, do I miss it that much? <laughs> I'm sorry. Do I need to get death threats because I didn't like an episode of like I, like Andor? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's scary oh out here today. So <laughs> sometimes I miss it. But I also I mean, I did have I also feel a lot of issues with just freelancing and journalism as an industry when it comes to how they treat black women, queer people. Um, I just ran into so many issues with white editors that it constantly felt like I was fighting to be heard or to get my opinion out there or to just get them to see that I was making sense. Um, Hmm. I think it all started like I did, uh, (laughs) Uh, there was an editor who asked me to pitch to write about Atlanta when it first was premiering. And I watched like the first three or four episodes and had my pitch. And I was like, you know, this is about an exploration of like the black imagination and, you know, how there can be black shows that happen without consequence that are just about, you know, the, the story uh, and the journey. And the editor was like, no that's totally wrong like someone gets shot in the first episode and it's a very serious look at black male uh, life and the yeah. uh, the like hard ways of living in atlanta for these men <laughs> and i was just like it's not <laughs> i was like it's yeah. about like black male joy and friendship and and he was just like no it's about the gritty atlanta and i was like i think you're just a white dude who needs it to be about that and yeah, yeah. uh he hired someone else to write it and that and it's just like that happens so often that I get tired of having to explain myself to the people who are supposed to help me present my work to the world don't even understand at a core like what the work is because they are so removed from like what a black critic or black art would be trying to say so it's like I just got tired of trying to prove myself to my editors trying to prove myself to the audience that like what I'm saying matters <laughs> You're making me consider for the first time what it means to to work in a space in which the goal is for you to have a, a well thought out opinion and present it to the world. And now I understand a little bit more like the friction with editors that people are typically talking about. It feels like a, a version of like a TV writer's room yeah. is happening oh, at all of these. Yeah, it's like you can have all these like black writers in a writer's room and then some white producer is like, Uh, I think this and that's what people default to. And I just got tired of it in the industry. Um, Like it happened so many times. I worked on a piece on Southside about how it presented policing. And there was like a white editor who insisted like, this is the kind of policing black people want to see in television. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) I I don't think black people dream of seeing policing in their TV at all. (laughs) And, you know, you run into these types of arguments and also that like doesn't really make editors like you because they want people who agree with them. So it just all kind of piled up to make me go, why am I 
even fighting so hard to do criticism when it's not even appreciated by the places I'm writing for because they're so white centered. I mean, I wrote TV reviews for the AV club for years and it took them like four or five years before they were finally like, do you want to write a film review? (laughs) Because they'd only (laughs) ever published two black women, two black people in their film review section. Everything had been written by like white people. They only ever really covered white films And it was when they needed someone to write about Defive Bloods that they were like, we need a black person. Hey, Ashley. Yeah. And I got tired of that. Like, I was just like, why can I, why do I only have to write about the black stuff? Why? It just didn't seem very, it's just like, it wasn't bringing me joy. And it's like, why fight to do this when I can just do comedy? And do you think that you've incorporated some elements of the things that you do on, in the critical lane into your stand-up? Do you feel like stand-up is like the perfect fusion of all the things that yeah, you want to do? Absolutely. Nice. Oh my God. I can go, I do stand-up. I can go to an open mic, stand on a stage, say whatever about whatever. And nobody is like, she's tearing down the black like creative community <laughs> and trying to get blackish canceled because she said, Oh, yeah. I don't know that tag in this scene. Wasn't that funny? <laughs> like, well, it feels like the power of like, there's a weight to like words that are written down in an official space. Yeah. That's different than talking on a than stage. Talking on a stage, which I think took me a minute to really learn. Cause I, for me, it was just kind of like, I don't, I don't know. I don't take everything I read that's written in print or in a review seriously. They're just people who write those things. But then I realized like how much power people put into, you know, the printed word and uh, just public published stuff. And I, you don't feel that burden or heaviness with stand up. No one cares. Like even if you Mm. record it and film it, you can put it on TikTok or whatever. And odds are like 60 people see it, like it and no other people won't and they won't care. (laughs) It's just, there's so much video and so much content that it's like, who cares? I definitely have been very happy to, to just explore my, my art that way. But I, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of, it's, it's just so great. And then I see Twitter as sort of an extension of that where it's just like an open mic. It's just a place to try ideas. And I guess because it's a, a, it's written word, people freak out about it. And sometimes my tweets that get people angry are jokes I've been telling on stage for years that no one cares about. <laughs> I'm like, really? This made people mad. I've been using this joke on stage for so long and people just laugh and are like, ha. Huh. But then they read it on Twitter and lose their minds. And sometimes, but I'm like, you have the context of me being a comedian and you Mm. should have the context of seeing a joke on Twitter before. Um, So what is being lost here? Well, I feel like it's a testament to your uh, personality and what people love about your work that I I don't remember what you tweeted. I remember your your, like Twitter deleted one of your old accounts and I've seen you rebuild uh, your fan base from scratch on there. Yeah. But it just makes, it makes me wonder um, how do you feel about the, it feels like Twitter could disappear any day now. Oh, I hope it under, does. I don't give it, I didn't it does. lose my first account. I deleted it on purpose. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I literally was like, I hate this website. Uh, I'm sick of using it and I'm going to get suspended so that I am not on it. Um, and was just kind of like, blow it up. Like this place. Um, my old account, I think I had like 30,000 something followers, um, and so I tweeted a joke about, I pretended to be Donald Trump and like made fun of, he tweeted like I won the election. And then I was like, Oh, sorry. It's a typo. I meant to say erection. 
Um, <laughs> not even a funny joke. I was like, this is lazy, but like, whatever, like send, send the suspension. And I thought I would just get suspended for like, uh, like two weeks or a month, you know, and then mm-hmm. they would be like, yeah, change it back to get back in. But they permanently suspended my account. And I was like, OK, well, I wasn't expecting that. But like, fine. Yeah. I was happy. God, I was so happy. And then my managers <laughs> were like, hey, you have to be on Twitter. Uh, you oh we, yeah. Were yeah. you like we used your Twitter follows to get you jobs and uh-huh. things and you have contracts to promote things on Twitter and you have to be on there. And uh, so you got to be on Twitter. Uh, and they made me start a new one. Uh, and then I rebuilt it. Um, although I, when I got my podcast back, uh, Earwolf like talked to someone at Twitter and they did give me my old account back. So Oh, wow. So you're but, living the double Twitter life. Yeah, I just <laughs> turned it into the one for my podcast. So if you go to nice. TVI Say Pod, it's the old The Ashley Ray account. And that's why it has like 30,000 followers. Brilliant brilliant moves and (laughs) people never seem to know this i literally had to write an article detailing all of this because so many people thought i unfollowed them on twitter and were like why did you unfollow me i thought we were friends and i literally had to write an explanation (laughs) of how and that's why i just please let the site die because i need people to not care this much about it why (laughs) like what why did i have to write that who like But yeah, I mean, I guess I'm grateful for some things Twitter brought in my life. Um, It's the reason I got to interview Seth Rogen and Roxane Gay. So that that was good. Well, that feels like a nice positive note to end this (laughs) uh, podcast on. This has been a really great time. And I think uh, a lot of people are going to get some some great stuff out of it. And I'd love to have you back on to talk about genre some more. Specifically, hopefully at some point to talk about how so many like TV and media genres are fusing together. I want to know some of your theories about, about that. I have a lot to say about that. Genres these days. Want more from Ashley Ray? Check out her TV I Say podcast or purchase her stand-up album, Ice Cream Money, on March 1st. Freddie Nunez created this theme song and Adam Smith produced it. Comedy writer Mike Sachs joins me next week, but if you become a paid subscriber to my newsletter, you can listen to it a week ahead of the normies. This is Tim Barnes signing off with your weekly reminder that you, yes, you, are the genre. First I got your voicemail, then I got you. We can meet in person or maybe on Zoom. So tell me what your genre, tell me what do you do? I'd like to know the things that specifically make you.